I will be reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, the New International Version. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ, Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning to you all. Good to, it's good to be back here at Midway Mennonite uh, after our summer on sabbatical. I just want to begin by just thanking you all for, for your prayers, uh, for your support, for those of you, many of you who filled in various roles while I was gone, I, uh, uh, and just for the congregation as whole for graciously making this possible uh, to do this sabbatical with my family. We had a wonderful time. We spent two months out in Colorado mostly, camping and hiking and, and fishing in the, the beautiful Rocky Mountains. I, uh, I'll try not this fall to overwhelm you with metaphors of fly fishing and mountains. They, I'm sure they're going to they're gonna come through. We also had just the opportunity to, to be with God's people in a different place. Uh, we worshiped with different congregations. We did house worship and and worship in, in, a, in a place called Uray, Colorado, which is surrounded by a, a canyon right in the San Juan Mountains. And, and I realized, like, after Kate's sermon, we are unified as a, as a body, and that stretches out far and wide. Some of us have a slightly more spectacular backdrop to our worship, but I realized when I got back to Ohio that we have much better sweet corn and peaches. Like, it's, it's they advertise the sweet corn out in Colorado, and it's it would not fly here in Ohio, let me just say that. So we're, we're beginning a new series today. We're, we're going to be in the book of Philippians this fall. I've, I'm excited to be in this series. I've wanted to preach through this book for a while. You all, if you were here a few weeks ago, you got to hear uh, Duffy, Duffy do perform this letter up um, on this stage. Uh, how many were there for that? I don't know how many. Good, we had a good, good amount of people are there. And I, I hope, among the many things, I've heard good things about that, I hope one of the things you took from that was, this was a real letter. This was composed by a real person. This was a person under, as I think he probably showed, under challenging circumstance. It was written to real people, you know, a real community of Jesus followers in the first century. And uh, I think one of the things I frequently think we should remind ourselves, I read a, a biblical scholar say this once, is that we need to remind ourselves that Scripture was written for us, but not to us. Scripture, the Bible, things like the, the letter to the Philippians, it was absolutely written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And when we read, I've said this before, when we read, uh, Ernest used to kind of say this often, when you're reading these epistles, you're literally reading someone else's mail. We're reading a mail with a backdrop, a culture and geography and history that is just very foreign to us here in Northeast Ohio in the 21st century. And there's things we miss, right? We don't know the culture of first century, century Macedonia. So I'm, I'm preaching a sermon to you right now. It's, it's uh, you know, 2021. I can say lots of things, and I don't need to give you a bunch of background information. I can say masks. And I think you know I'm not talking about Halloween masks, right? I can say a vaccine. We're probably not talking about the chicken pox vaccine. We realize, like, kids don't get the chicken pox these days. Like, 
I don't know, you got them at school, and I don't know. It's good. It's good they don't get it, but there's these various things, January 6th, George Floyd, all these things that sit in the backdrop of 2020, 2021, that I don't have to spend a lot of time giving you background information. But like, if 50 years from now, this is probably highly unlikely, I have grandkids, and my grandkids listen to my sermons, again, highly unlikely, they're going to have to fill in some background. Like, what was exactly happening in 2020 and 21 that, my, that he's referencing these things? So what, here's what I want to do just for the first part. I want to try to fill in a little bit of that background. Not because I think you all want or need a history lesson. Maybe, maybe some of you will enjoy this more than others. But because hopefully by filling in a little bit what's behind this letter, uh, we're going to understand better what Paul's saying to the Philippians. And in turn, we're going to be able to more faithfully apply that to our lives. So, for example, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You see that in locker rooms, exhorting football teams to give it their best. Is that what Paul is getting at? Or is possibly the fact that he was imprisoned and waiting execution, is that maybe a little different than maybe something in the locker room? Or, or when Paul says citizenship in heaven, what, what changes when we know that the most prized citizenship of the day was Roman citizenship? So, so we have a letter written to the church in Philippi by the Apostle Paul. He founded this church. If you read in Acts 16, you'll read about the founding of this community of believers. Uh, you can put up that first slide, Ron. We've got, just kind of get your head around where Philippi is. That's modern-day Greece. That would be the northeast part of Greece. Um, and uh, you can just leave that up there for a minute. And Paul had been led in the book of Acts to this place to the southeast where it says Asia on the coast of, of Troas, and he doesn't think this is where he's going to go. He doesn't think he's going to go to Macedonia, but all of a sudden he has this vision in the middle of the night, and this man from Macedonia comes over and begs him for, to come over and help them. And so Paul and Timothy, possibly Luke, they cross over that the little short uh, bit of water between Asia and, and Macedonia, and they, they arrive in Europe. For like the first time, Europe is going to hear this news, this message, this gospel that there's a new king. And, and the first people to hear it are kind of an unlikely group. It's a, it's a group of women. Uh, one of them, you probably remember Lydia. She's a, she's a businesswoman. She's the first one, she and her household, to join this new community. We've got a jailer. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've got some kind of eclectic group of people that are forming this first Jesus community in uh, Europe. And Luke, Luke is really clear to tell us that Philippi is a Roman colony. He goes out of his way to remind us it's a Roman colony. So that's the first thing. I know you're not going to remember all this, but just kind of get in your mind. You need to know that Philippi is a Roman colony. It's got this long and rich history. It's... Uh, in, in B.C. 42, so 100 years or so before Paul gets here, there's this famous battle that's fought outside the town. And uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 B.C., you might remember that. And a civil war broke out between these two factions. One was led by Mark Antony and Octavian, who would later become Caesar Augustus. You, you hear that we see that name in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he's the first Roman emperor. And then we've got another faction led by Brutus and Cassius. These were the assassins of Julius Caesar. And this, they had this huge battle, like 200,000 people outside this town of Philippi. 
and Mark, Antony, and Octavian defeat Brutus and Cassius. And what happens is that then all these soldiers that were in that area, they, they end up taking up residence in Philippi, and it becomes a Roman colony. It means even though it's not in Italy, uh, Philippi is not on Italian soil. It has the same rights and status of a city that would be in, uh, on Italian soil. You can go up to the next one. And there was this important way, the Ignatian way, that connected the western part of the Roman Empire with the eastern part. And it, and it connected all these really important Roman colonies along the way. And as you can see, Philippi, you probably can't see, but it's there. It's right along that way. We, we know the Apostle Paul, you can do the next slide, he, he took this way. It's kind of interesting to think about you know, Paul walking down this road. It doesn't look like much to us, but this was the main thoroughfare through that connected west and east. And Philippi's right on this way, so it's, it's important culturally and commerce and, and historically. So, um, you can put up the next slide here. Uh, Joseph Hellerman, I, I've been reading a book of his, who did uh, a bunch of extensive study on Roman cultural values. He, in his book, he asked this interesting question. He says, imagine you're on a, like, imagine you're up on I-80, and you drive by, and you see a, 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 a billboard, and it has this, okay? By nature, we yearn and hunger for, and there's a blank, and once we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. And so what Hellerman asks is, is you know, what would today, what, how would we fill in that blank as a culture? Like what in our culture, not what we should for, yearn for, but what do we actually yearn for? What do we hunger for? What do we, if people in our culture, if they get a taste of it, they will do nothing to stop, uh, to secure it. So like love maybe? I mean, we probably have different ideas. Love, maybe romantic love. That might be maybe the love of family and friends. That might be the thing that we think, once we taste that, you know, that's what we want more than anything. Money, maybe, for some people. I would argue, maybe in our cultural moment, probably not your generation, but I would say attention is kind of the highest currency among many people in our culture today. Like, if, if you were to ask someone, would you rather have $100 million or 100 million Instagram followers, that Instagram followers might actually be more valuable. Lots of people have $100 million. Not a lot of people have 100 million Instagram followers. That is, in many ways, the currency of the day. Once you get a taste for that attention from social media or wherever, you yearn for it. You want more and more. Okay? So, if that, if, let's, let's, let's say, if this, is, if this billboard is on the Ignatian Way in, in around 50 B.C., Hellerman says there's only one answer. There's only one answer, honor. Not money, sir, he says certainly not love, that would be ridiculous. Honor. Honor was the most prized social commodity in the Roman world. And in fact, this is a real quote from the philosopher and lawyer and statesman Cicero. Like this was around this time he wrote this, and in the blank he had honor. So once you, once you, once you got your basic needs taken care of, you're in the Roman Empire, all your energy is spent, how do I increase the honor of not just me, but my family? And how do I avoid public dishonor? So, for example, you've got a lot of money. Well, that's important, but what you're going to do with that money is you're going to use that to increase your honor. 
So you're going to like use that money to acquire new titles and positions. And you might even uh, build a statue for yourself and put it up in the square in the middle of town and have all your titles on there. And the idea is that will increase your honor. In that culture of the day, humility is not a virtue. You need to know this. Humility is not a virtue. So today, uh, you know, think about it today. You, you bump into someone who's famous or is quite wealthy, and, and sometimes you'll hear someone say admiringly, you know, that person was so down to earth. Like, they were, that's just a good old boy just like me. They were wearing boots, and, man, they were, you know, picked up their dishes just like you and I, and we mean that, like, in the best way, right? I think if we say they're like, they're just like one of us. Back then, that's not, that's no virtue at all. Back then, from when you were a kid, you're taught to do everything you can to increase your honor for you and your family and to make sure everyone around you knows it. So think back. This, I think this just opened up to me. This is a little different part, but it's similar. Think back on the Gospel of Mark when we looked at the story when James and John unabashedly tell Jesus, we want the left and we want the right, the seats of honor. And their mom, in the other Gospel, their mom's helping them to, to ask this. Like we're, like, we're appalled by this. We cannot believe that they would have the gall to ask for that. But this would have been completely normal in a place like Philippi. Of course you're going to ask for the place of honor. That's the highest commodity. So as we go through this letter, again, I'm throwing a lot at you, but you just need to, it's a Roman colony. Honor and status is the most prized commodity in this culture. So why is Paul writing this letter? You know, was Paul, he's in prison, as you saw, if you saw the presentation a couple weeks ago, is, is Paul in prison, and he's, there's not a lot to do in prison, so he thinks, you know, I'm going to pin these words, and in and, and 2,000 years from now, they'll, they'll be studied and, and memorized and treated as holy scripture. Like, can you imagine the pressure of, like, pinning that letter? Like, when I write a thank you note to someone that's going to be read for five seconds and thrown away, I agonize over the words. Right? Can you imagine if Paul would have known like, that us here, we're studying verse by verse this letter? No. Paul wrote this letter because he had an opportunity to send a letter. Yet he had an opportunity. It was much more mundane than that. What happened was that uh, uh, Paul's in prison somewhere. We're not sure exactly where, if it's Rome or Ephesus or somewhere else. Scholars have debated this. But the way that things worked back then is if you were in prison, it was more like house arrest. So he's not, he's not being punished by being in prison. What he's doing is he's awaiting trial. So he's going to be tried for treason, and they're going to figure out, is he going to be executed? Is he going to be banished? What's going to be the punishment? But while you're under house arrest, you don't, you don't get like three square meals a day. You've got to take care of that yourself. So what happens is your friends and family support you, and that's what's happening here. The church in Philippi, wherever Paul is, is sending financial aid and support to him. And they do it through the person of Epaphroditus. And that's what we'll, we'll in this letter, we'll, we'll see this name. But he shows up, and he, and he offers his support to Paul, and all of a sudden, Paul now has the opportunity to write them a letter, okay? And so he wants to do a few different things. He wants to, first of all, thank them for this support that they've sent. But, he, you know, of course, he does other things, too. He's, he's going to commend the messenger who risked his life and became seriously ill. He's going to tell them about, you know, his personal circumstances. He's going to exhort them into some serious things, into unity, and to stand firm in the, in the face of persecution. But Paul's also, here's what I want you to notice, he's also writing friends. Like, he's writing a congregation that he loves. 
and that that congregation loves him. That congregation has stuck with Paul through thick and thin. So this letter is deeply personal. There's, there's this love that goes both ways. You know, the fact that, that the church in Philippi is going to raise money and send it to Paul speaks volumes about what they thought about him. You know, N.T. Wright, probably N.T. Wright, the fine scholar of the Apostle Paul, probably a little defensive of him, says that, you know, sometimes we think about Paul being this kind of awkward, unpopular sort of person, kind of grates on us. N.T. Wright says, no, that's not what you do to someone like that. They loved him. The, the, you know, this, this letter is such a, I'm, I'm currently in my own personal time reading through the book of, of Romans, and I love it, but this is such a different letter than Romans. Romans is much more informal. He's, he's probably never met any of these people. It's more like a theological essay. It's super dense. It's sometimes hard to understand. That's not Philippians. Philippians has lots of theology in it for sure, but it also kind of bounces around like a conversation with a friend would. So he's talking about his personal circumstances, and then he's thinking about them, and then he's thinking about this. It's like a conversation would go between friends. So let's, 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 we're just going to look at two verses today, and the rest of the time we have, let's look at those. Um, we don't have many letters today, right? We don't write a lot of letters. At least, thankfully, you all know what letters are. I don't know, you know younger people probably don't write them as much as, as we even did. But there's a few basic things that we do when we write a letter, okay? There's usually always a dear or maybe a hello. You know, there's a greeting there. Then there's the person's name, dear mom. You're writing your letter to your mom. And then uh, we end it with usually love or sincerely and then your name. So, right, there's these basic things that I think you can assume are going to be part of every letter. And it's, what's interesting is I thought about it is there's all these ways that you can communicate things through these, just these few words. So, for example, when I'm, when I'm starting the letter, do I say dear or hello? Like, dear sounds, especially today, pretty formal. Hello sounds more informal. Uh, do I put their title on there? Do I say Mr. or Mrs. or Dr.? If you want to get a, a, a groan from my wife, watch her pick up a piece of mail that says, Mr. and Mrs. Matthew Peterson. One of her friends from college likes to uh, subversively push back at that by addressing it as Dr. and Mr. Christiana Peterson. Right? So there's, you're saying something, right? You, it's just a few words, but you're saying something. And then at the end of the letter, I, I don't know if you struggle, I'm like, love or sincerely? Anybody else struggle with that? Like, love sounds like love. And I'm like, do I, well, I don't even really know this person. So just within those few things, I've got some decisions to make, and I'm going to communicate some stuff to the person that's receiving the letter. My point is we have a structure. We don't think about it, but we've got a basic structure for how we write letters. Same thing in Paul's world. He's going to have three things in the letter. He's going to, the sender's going to name themselves. They're going to name the addressee, so who the letter's going to, and then they're going to include a greeting. And so Paul's, if you look at these first two verses, it includes all of those things. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Timothy, unlikely that Timothy's helping compose it, but he's part of this team. Paul names. Who's sending it? It's Paul. To all God's people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Okay, now we have the addressees, all right? Who's this letter being sent to? It's being sent to the church in Philippi. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your greeting, okay? We've got these three things that are going to be part of, in the Greco-Roman world, every letter. And uh, 
and, and here's what's interesting about this. We're so familiar with these words, they just kind of bounce off. Of, but, but Paul's kind of doing some subtle, interesting things here uh, with these. Even like I would say subversive and shocking in just these few little words. And, and what's going to happen is that's going to set the tone for the rest of the letter. That's going to foreshadow what else he's going to talk about. So look at the first line. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Sounds pretty straightforward. But this is where it helps you to see in the Greek that that word is absolutely not servants. That word is doulos, which means slaves. And, and I understand there's some reasons why translators have, have used this word, slaves, as, as a challenging word, but it's just too weak. It doesn't capture what Paul is saying, because in the Roman Empire, there was a, it was basically a two-class society. You had this very small percentage of people who were part of the elite, and then that elite just subdivided themselves into like the super elite, and then the little less elite, and then you know, they were a very small population. And then you had the rest of the population, which was the non-elite, but they also subdivided themselves. And the, the biggest gap in the non-elite was, are you a free or are you a, sla a slave? So in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was certainly different than, you know, we think about North American slavery, chattel slavery, the whores of it, slightly different, but there is some similarities to it, right? You, it wasn't race-based. Often these were people captured in, in war uh, or maybe they had a debt. But there's some similarities. You are somebody else's property. Their goals, their objectives are your objectives. You don't have freedom. And remember what I said to you about you know, Philippi and the culture, humility is not a virtue. Like, we have been so influenced by Jesus and Christianity that even in theory, at least, we hold up humility as a virtue. Like, we, we talk about, like, servant leader, right? That's, that's a good thing. We love servant leaders. And we sing songs like, make me a servant, Lord, make me like you. I, I'm not going to sing it. Will you let me be your servant? And at least in theory, whether we actually do that or not, we, that, that's the, what we should do. We should be servants to each other. Like, not in Paul's day. E even in your mind, try substituting slave for servant. Make me a slave, Lord. Will you let me be your slave? We, we kind of cringe at that. Imagine how the church in Philippi, in a super, super status-conscious society, how much they would have cringed when Paul takes the title slave. So there's a couple other places in the New Testament where Paul will say slave, but always with the honorary title apostle. There's no honorable title here. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Who gets the honorable titles? It's them. The people in Philippi, they get the honorable titles. To all God's holy people or saints, together with the overseers and deacons. We've got these, these, don't think about like offices, like deacons and bishops like we think today, but people in leadership, but all God's people, everyone in that congregation, they get the honorable titles. You, you see what Paul's doing here? Just in these few words, in the address of the letter, he's messing with the cultural norms of the day. He's poking at those cultural norms. He's being subversive with those. In a society obsessed with status and title and ranks, Paul says, I'll take the lowest title. And later on, he's going to exhort this congregation to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but value others above yourself. It just even in these first few words, Paul is valuing others above himself. He's modeling it in a, in a small way 
but a significant way by taking the title of slave and giving them the honorable titles. And one of the themes that, that Paul's going to keep coming back to in this letter is unity. We don't get the details about what's happening. In this beloved congregation, like all congregations, there's challenges, there's problems. One of them is disunity. We're going to read about a couple of women who have some disagreement. We're not sure what they're disagreeing with. And he's calling them to be of one mind. So how do you achieve unity when people disagree? If I, maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but if I'm honest with myself, the best way to achieve unity is for that person I disagree with to come around to agreeing with me. Right? And then we're unified. That's unity. And if, like, I think if they could just kind of see rationally the facts here, surely they would come over to my side. And I think about, like, disagreements that happen over social media and, and people send various articles to people they disagree with. And I'm trying to think of how often you, you get a response that says, I just want to thank you for sharing that. I want to thank you for just making me aware of some errors I wasn't aware of. Anybody ever gotten that response when you, when you, when you like, and anger, like, blasted them a news story? Like, how effective was Uncle, when Uncle Jack sent you some article last week on Facebook, were you like, yep, you got, I'm changing my position. You're right. You put up the next slide. And, and Frank Thielman, in his commentary on this passage, writes this. The most effective way to achieve unity is not to demand that everyone agree with us, but to look out for the interests of others and to refuse to claim for ourselves the privileges that rightfully belong to us. Paul's not naive. Paul doesn't think like, oh, we just need to all love each other and then everything's going to be fine. Paul cares about beliefs. So don't, don't hear that. But Paul knows a posture of someone of humility, of someone who's a servant, if you are genuinely, genuinely looking out for the interest of others, that's a powerful step towards unity. Okay? So, so this before I before I make my case, have I asked myself, is is the interest of that person, am I holding that above my own? That, that shifts a little bit what you're doing. Am I trying to be right, or am I going to engage in conversation because I have their best interest in mind? And to do, and when you do that, do some hard work because we're really good at, at self-delusion, right? We will tell ourselves all the time that this is for the benefit of that person when really it's for our benefit. What a difference does it make in conflict when we say, all right, I'm going to start out with the idea of I'm going to look out for their interest first, and then we're going to engage. And Paul is, Paul is modeling this posture in Philippi. He's giving him an example. And I, wanna, I want you to notice he, uh, you can take that off, thanks, Ron. I want you to notice who he's addressing this to. It's not just to the leaders of the congregation. He starts out with all God's people, all God's holy people. That's actually the saints. And we hear this word saints, and we think like stained glass and uh, people we are venerated because they live these pious and spectacular lives that that we could never live. But that's not at all what Paul means when he says saints. Paul's talking about holy people in the vein of the Old Testament. People who have been set apart by God. Not because uh, the Israelites did something special, but because God chose them. Like you are a holy people. You're saints because God has graciously chosen you to make you his people. You're, you're a new community. You're, you're now dedicated to a new purpose. You've got a new status. And he's saying, all you saints. Or as I, when I went to school in Texas, I think it would have been, all y'all saints. 
right? Like, I want to make sure every one of you, from the very back of this sanctuary to the very front, all you all saints. Sometimes I hear, I think, it, I don't know if it's been in this congregation, someone will tell me a story, and they were a kid, and, and when they would go out the door, their parent would look at them and say, don't you forget who you are. You are a, you're a Peterson, or you're a Yoder, or you're a Wanger, or you're a Snyder, or whatever. I don't know if your parents ever said that. They didn't mean, like, don't, don't forget your name. What they mean is don't forget to act consistent with who you are, with that name you carry. Paul is saying, all y'all saints, you holy people, you people who God has graciously called, don't forget who you are. Don't forget to conduct yourself in line with who you are. And then finally, he gives the greeting. So he said, the sender, the addressing, now we have the greeting. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think these are other words. I've heard these words all my life. They just kind of bounce off me. But Paul's, he's tinkering again. He's tinkering in some subtle and surprising ways. He's, he's got a double greeting here. He's Jewish. Let's remind ourselves that Paul is Jews. He's going to use the word shalom or peace, right? That's a typical, that's the traditional Jewish greeting, shalom, which means it's not just peace. It's, it's this rich word, wholeness, well-being, salvation, okay? Peace. But then he's going to also say grace. In Greek, charis. And just to kind of geek out for a second on Greek, hang with me for a second, but in the Greco-Roman world, the typical word you would use was karen. Charis, karen. Karen just means greeting. It's kind of innocuous. Greetings to you. Charis is that word for grace. Is that word, that rich word for the unmerited favor of God. And Paul is saying, I'm not saluting you. It's God that's saluting you. It's God that's greeting you. And he's doing so with grace and peace. All y'all saints, God Almighty salutes you. And he does so with favor and shalom. All y'all saints, don't forget that this God is for you. Folks, this, this letter, as I said, was not written to you. But these words are for you. All y'all saints, of men by midnight, it is God who salutes you, and he does so with grace and peace. God is for you. What could inspire the Apostle Paul, a person, to live in such a countercultural way, to, to lower themselves, to give up status, to take on the title of slave, to look out for the interests of others rather than their own, to speak of joy again and again, even when a death sentence is hanging over you? Because Paul is convinced God is for him. That God has moved and continues to move towards him with favor and shalom and peace and grace and salvation. He knows it not just from empty words. He knows it because he's an example. See, what's so interesting about this letter, it's kind of bouncing around, but there's this one beautiful hymn that sits right at the middle. One beautiful poem. And it's kind of like the center of gravity. Everything around this letter is going to revolve around this hymn. It's the Christ hymn. If you, see, if you look at your, uh, your order of worship, it's on the back of this. We'll get to there in a few weeks. It tells in poetic form the condensed version, the story of the gospel, of, of a God who 
is a God of self-emptying and nature and, and sacrificial love. A God who, through the person of Jesus, humbles God's self, gives up status, gives up title and honor, and becomes a slave. Again, it'll say servant, but slave. It's surprising to hear Paul give up status and titles and honor and accord those on to the brothers and sisters in Philippi. Like, how much more shocking is it when we hear God himself, through the person of Jesus, set aside status, set aside titles, set aside honors, and take on the nature of a slave for you and for me? That is a God who is for you. That is a God who is for you. Not through cheap words, but costly example. And what I want to do, I'm going to end here, just I want to encourage you this fall as we go through this book, to let these words seep into you, to let them saturate your day and your life. And I think one of the things we do, I think it's lost now, is to memorize these words. A lot of you might have grown up memorizing Scripture. Memorization of Scripture is we, we try to make it a big deal in our house because I think it's so important to work, not just to get information, to, but work those passages into your life. And you're not too old to do it. If you can do Sudoku and crossword puzzles, you can memorize, okay? So I want to challenge you. You've got 12 weeks I think it's, uh, what, 11, like seven or eight verses. Take a verse a week and memorize it. If you're alone, do it by yourself. Do it with friends. If you've got a family, write it up on a board. Try to take one line every, every week and memorize it together. And let that kind of be the center as we, of this letter as we keep going back to it. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you that this letter that has come down to us all these years later, well, not to us, it is for us. What an amazing thing for the Apostle Paul to show us, reveal to us, communicate to us what our God has done for us, what you have done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. I just ask that we can be like the Apostle Paul, where this begins to be the center of our life. Everything we, can, we have in our life keeps going back to this, this center of gravity, this incredible story of you through Jesus humbling yourself to the point of death, and now exalted as Lord of heaven and earth. I just ask, Lord, for in each of our lives that we make this the point, the center of gravity uh, throughout our day and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.